All right, well, let's get after it. If you have a Bible, we'll go to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27 is where we will be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback underneath a chair around you. Acts chapter 27, if you have a pen or pencil or highlighter, uh, you can have that handy too. We'll notice a few things here in Acts chapter 27. We are in the middle slash toward the end of a sermon series where we're preaching through the book of Acts. So, so close that we can taste it, okay, to the end of Acts. 28 chapters, we'll uh, rock through chapter 27 this morning. Um, and a very, very interesting story. So I don't know if you heard or were paying attention to the news, Carnival Triumph. Did you hear about that? Okay, and see. Uh, cruise liner, very luxurious, okay. Has a problem in the middle of the sea, and then it turns into kind of like this living horror. Raw sewage everywhere, Lord of the Flies, okay, on the deck. Uh, lots of media they get back. Uh, and so it's, it was kind of amusing to see kind of the, the news report. So the high school I work at, uh, the seniors every year take a senior trip. And uh, last year, they were supposed to fly to some exotic location. And on the way to the airport, the bus broke down, and they got to the airport too late and weren't able to take the flight. The whole trip got messed up, got canceled. Everyone was in a big hurrah about it, okay? It's a really bad situation. Well, this year, I heard a couple days ago that they were scrambling to try to come up with an entire new senior trip in a couple of days. I was like, what's going on? They're like, they were going to go on the Triumph. Uh, the one that's currently being tugged to shore right now, and so that got canceled. Now I've warned you guys against reading into signs from God, but I think that might be a clear one, okay? <laughs> Senior trip's not a good idea. You have, though, I mean, it was just kind of humorous to me. And I don't know what was more humorous to me. The f- I think what got me the most was how horrified and shocked some people were about what happened. And so I get it. It's gross, and it's nasty. And, I mean, we're all like, what would we do if we were on there? Okay. I had a friend, actually, who was on the Triumph, the, the trip before it broke down in the sea. And her and her friends were actually joking about, I hope something happens so that we can get a free trip <laughs> and get a refund. And then it did happen. Like, I'm glad that did not happen while we were on board. Um, but, but to hear some people talk about it, it was the most horrific thing that could have possibly happened. Like, you would have thought in 2013 that we would not have to endure that when we're on our luxurious cruise liners, right? We wouldn't have this kind of horrible thing happen. And I kind of wondered what someone in the third world, like maybe someone's living in a slum, right? How they would react to that kind of like shock and horror to the situations, right? Oh, I'm so sorry that your cruise liner broke down, right? And you had a bit of an odor for a few days. Um, One of the things that happens uh, with modernity and the enlightenment, okay, in the last couple hundred years, is you and I in Western industrialized civilizations, we've kind of pushed evil out of our focus, out of our sight. And this is why, to be honest, we react really surprised when we see something bad happen to us, um, when we, we're encountered with evil. So despite the fact that thousands and thousands of people die every day from lack of hunger, and there's horrible, horrible living conditions people are in every day, right? Cruise liner goes down, and we're like, oh my gosh, there's still bad things happening in the world, right? Why God? Why us? The cruise liner. Or, right, we're faced with a statistic from the third world. Or, just recently, got to hear a little bit about slave, uh, sex trafficking in Houston and how kind of big of a problem that is. And we see that and we go, oh my gosh, who would have thought, right? I mean, look around us, it looks like we solved the problem of evil. The grass is cut, the sun's shining, people are polite, right? Crime rate's low. It's kind of this myth of the Enlightenment. That we've figured out how to have a kind of utopian society, and occasionally things go wrong, but when they do, it's a blip in the radar, right? Despite the fact that worldwide, globally, things are, things are not great. There's serious, serious evil happening. And I think we even do this in our Christian lives. So, so when we become Christians and we start following Christ, we rightly rejoice in the idea that Jesus has defeated our enemies on the cross. That there's been a victory, 
Sin, death, evil, Satan has been defeated. Jesus has risen from the dead. And some of us get sold a bill of Christianity that, that would have us think that once we start following Christ, we won't be faced with suffering. That that's something unusual. That's something we shouldn't be prepared for. And then when it hits, not if, when it hits, we react shocked and confused. And we don't know what to do with it. We don't know where to place it. We don't know if we've failed or if God has failed. And over and over again in the scriptures, you're going to have this, this idea that, that this is what's coming. If you start to follow Christ, I mean, if you really want to pursue him, if you really want to follow him in obedience, you need to prepare for a bit of suffering. You shouldn't be surprised if you wake up one day and go, oh, wow, why is there sewage on the wall? Right? I thought this was going to be a, a luxurious cruise. And the scriptures say, no, 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 you should have been prepared for this. There might be storms coming your way. And you need to know how, as a Christian, to respond appropriately in those storms when you're, when you're lost at sea. Now, the Triumph cruise ship is not the only ship that's ever gotten in trouble at sea. And those passengers are not the only passengers that have ever gotten in trouble in sea. This morning, we'll see Paul and his ship get in a little bit of trouble at sea. Okay, so Acts 27. As soon as I heard about the Triumph a couple weeks ago, I got really excited. Because I knew just a couple of weeks, and we had a we had a we had a sea in a ship story. I'm that good, yeah. All right, Acts 27. Acts 27. Pick up in, in verse one. So if you remember, Paul for the last like six chapters since 21 has been trying to get to Rome. He got arrested in Jerusalem, held up in red tape on these little trials. Finally, he's going to get shipped to Rome as a prisoner. Not how he expected, but we're actually moving somewhere for the first time in a while. So we're, we're watching Paul as he goes to Rome. Uh, 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Remember, Paul's not a, a sentence criminal, right? He's arrested. He's going to face trial in Rome, but he hasn't actually been convicted of anything. He's still a Roman citizen. And we'll even see him and Julius. Julius treats him nicely. They kind of develop this little like pseudo-friendship okay, over the, the course of events. And so, so he lets uh, Paul go, find some Christians, get taken care of, get some food, some money. And putting out to sea, from there we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Snidus. And as the wind did not follow us to go further, or allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. We'll have to ask ourselves, why is Paul giving us all these details about the travel voyage? Okay, There's going to be a question we need to ask. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, this means it was winter time, about October, maybe end of September, Paul advised them saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, not sure how that works, and spend the winter there. Okay, so Paul um, gets on the ship. He's traveling through. Now, Luke, we know, is an excellent story writer. 
Okay, this is why Luke, the gospel, is my favorite gospel. As we've walked through the book of Acts, we've seen he's an excellent writer. He does nothing by mistake. Okay, it's a very interesting thing that after all this time, he's going to give us an entire chapter, a lot of verses, with these random details about Paul on a ship traveling to Rome. And there are other things he could have told us about. But I do think, as Luke does, the way he tells the story and the details he chooses to provide means a lot to him. And he wants us to follow the thread. He wants us to, to follow him along and pull out the meaning of the narrative that he's given us. So as we've noticed, when Luke tells the story of Paul, he's often paralleling it, um, putting it in parallel with Jesus' story from the Gospel of Luke. We've seen this over and over and over again in the last few chapters. Jesus goes to Jerusalem and is arrested. Paul goes to Jerusalem and is arrested. Jesus gets put on trial before Romans and Jewish authorities. Paul gets put on trial before Roman and Jewish authorities. We've seen this parallel between their two lives, particularly the events in Jerusalem. Now, we've also noticed Paul's story is different from Jesus' story. Paul gives a defense for himself, where Jesus does not. And then Paul, again, is going to go to Rome. Now, I would suggest the way that this story lines up in kind of the literary parallelism that Luke's doing here is this is Paul's equivalent of the crucifixion. We often think perhaps Paul going to Rome is Jesus, and so Paul just stays alive, right? He just gets through it. Or maybe if Paul dies in Rome, that's his equivalent. But Luke uh, 23 is what should be equal, I think, here to Acts 27. And so just as Jesus goes to the crucifixion, Paul goes to the sea. I think this is what Luke is doing for us here. Which might not seem like a big deal to you and I, but to Hebrew people, the sea is the source of all chaos and all evil. The source is this, this swirling ball of power and energy and might that's able to take human life without anybody being able to do anything about it. You and I might have a hard time getting into that, that sort of symbolism that the sea represented. In Hebrew literature, almost any time you see the sea, it has this sense of evil and chaos to it. So in, in Daniel 7, often in, in kind of apocalyptic literature, you'll see monsters coming out of the sea. In Daniel 7, the four beasts rise up out of the sea. Well, where else would they come from, right? I mean, that's where evil and chaos originates. In Revelation, uh, when God is done with his work of recreation, new creation, Revelation says there is no sea. And sometimes that disappoints you and I. You like vacations on the beach, right? The, 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 the point of it's not that you can't enjoy that anymore. Something like that won't be in the new creation, the new earth. But that there won't be that sense of chaos, that sense of evil that could come take the life of God's people at any moment. We might, again, not be able to, to, to feel that the way that they felt it. But you would only have to ask, I think, someone living on the coast after like a tsunami or a hurricane, what they thought about the sea, right? You and I can do a lot of impressive things with technology, with medicine, but we can't outrun water, right? Our best advice to you if a hurricane is coming or a tsunami is coming is run. Get out of the way. It will kill you if it wants to kill you. There's nothing that you can do about it. There's no button we can press. We can't shoot it down out of the sky like an asteroid. Okay, that happened recently too. Um, you just run. The sea is this kind of swirling source of chaos and evil. Now, you have this kind of foreboding, foreshadowing as they set out, okay? Um, they're traveling in the winter when most ships had stopped their travel. Now, uh, we know that Rome wanted to encourage travel in the winter, even though it was dangerous, because they needed wheat from the east, okay, to feed all their people. They constantly had famine problems. And so they had all these economic incentives. You'd get handsomely rewarded if you were able to make the journey during the winter and get over to Rome. So this group, okay, this would have been a commercial ship with probably wheat on it. Um, they wanted to chance it. Paul, using a little common sense, 
Uh, he's traveled a little bit. He's been on ships here and there. It says, this is going to be a dangerous trip. If we go, I see bad things happening. So we already have this sense building up that something bad is going to happen. Paul, the kind of representative of the gospel, the kind of main character of the kingdom right now, is about to go to where the sea has authority. And is about to maybe go through his own death, just like Jesus' crucifixion. I think that there is something for you and I to, to, to learn from here and to, to take from this, which is when we start to obey Christ, when we start to follow him, I think we should not be surprised when we start being opposed, when something starts to stand up against us, when we start to perhaps have storms of our own, when the forces of evil start to stop us. I mean, this happens on big and small levels. Have you ever noticed if you really try to start praying every day, it's really hard to do so if you've, if you've not been in that habit. I, want, I mean, think about that. Think about how hard it can be to start a little habit like that. You could, do, you could start other habits, probably a little bit more easy. I'm going to watch sports every night, right? I'm going to drink milk every morning. I'm going to have breakfast. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then, though, when you decide, I'm going to spend five minutes in prayer every morning, you figure out, oh, why can I not do this? If maybe there's something more happening there. Maybe there's some sort of some opposition to you trying to pursue Christ. So we have here Paul, who's going to go face to face, toe to toe with evil itself, chaos itself. Again, this is how we should be feeling as we read the story. This is not just a random storm at the sea that Paul is going to encounter. This is the force of chaos and evil itself. Now, Evil is a defeated enemy because of the cross. But, but as we've seen, evil still has a little bit of destructive energy to it. We live in this in-between period where, where Jesus has defeated the enemies of creation, but they're, they're still there and able to cause damage. Paul gets sat to sea, and, and we'll see what happens here. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the citrus, which would have been like the Bermuda Triangle of the ancient world. There were all these like legends about, I mean, you go over there, you're not coming back. Um... They lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So they start throwing stuff off of the boat. Anybody read their Bibles and are reminded of another story here? Out at sea, there's a storm, start throwing stuff off the boat. Jonah. Now, this is a little bit different than Jonah's story. We'll, we'll talk about that. Verse 19. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Verse 20. This is very important. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. If you have a, a pen or highlighter, you, you're doing that. Circle, box, highlight, underline that word saved there. Okay? We'll come back to that, but, but save that for later. Uh, saved. So they set out. This big storm hits them. Okay, they're, they're violently storm-tossed. Uh, they start throwing stuff up over the side of the water. And this is, for, for a Bible reader, this is very reminiscent of the story of Jonah. But Luke wants us to notice how different the two stories actually are in content. If you remember, Jonah got in a storm when he was running from God's mission. So he was supposed to go to location X 
and he instead went to the opposite. And then he gets in a storm, which is a pretty common uh, theme in ancient kind of sea epics, okay? Um, oftentimes, when a storm happens, you think God or a God, the God of the sea, is punishing someone on the ship, right? Trying to get justice. And so you're out at sea, um, the winds start howling, the, the, the boat starts getting tossed around, and you're starting to look at each other. Do you do something? Do you do something? What are we going on here? And Jonah confesses. If you remember the story, he's like, it's me, throw me out. <laughs> and so they throw him out. He ends up being dinner for a, a little sea monster, okay, for a while. And then, of course, he comes through. Now, notice Paul is the exact opposite. Paul's been told to go to Rome, okay, to go take the gospel to Rome and then on from Rome to the ends of the earth. And Paul has been willing to do that no matter what it costs him, whether that means his life or his death, whether that means he's free or in chains, right? He, he recently said, okay, I'll go. I'm not going to wait to get to get set free here. Take me in chains. I want to go talk to the emperor, perhaps sealing his fate here. But he says, I've got a destination. I've got a mission. Christ has called me to do something, so I'm going to do it no matter what. Now, on the way, and notice this, on the way, he meets evil, and they lose hope. Notice in verse 20, who loses hope? All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. We're back in a we section of Acts. So this is a, an eyewitness who's there. Maybe Luke traveling with Paul. And they lose all hope of getting out of this the storm alive. Now, the last couple of weeks I went back and, and read Jonah. Um, just because this, this was so reminiscent of the story. Jonah's a fascinating little story. Uh, it just really kind of captures my imagination. So Jonah's supposed to go to Nineveh, if you remember. And he's supposed to go preach uh, to the Ninevites and give them the opportunity to repent. And Jonah is really upset about this. He's really angry at God for telling him to do this. And sometimes we read the story and we go, Jonah's just being a little punk, right? Okay, God loves everybody. He wants to forgive them. Go preach to them, right? And we lose kind of the socio-political climate of that day. So Nineveh's the capital city of Assyria, which is this violent and bloodthirsty and really evil empire who, by the way will crush the northern ten tribes in just a few years. So bad that they don't exist anymore. I mean, they're just gone from history after the Assyrians come in 722 and take them out. That's who God says to go preach to. And what really irks Jonah is he has this haunting feeling that when he goes there, they're going to repent and God's going to be nice to them. That's what really gets him. He would be okay, I think, with going and preaching judgment to them, saying... Just so you know, God hates you, and he's going to destroy all of you, and boo-boo, there's nothing that you can do. <laughs> Boom, lightning comes, they all die, right? Or I think he would even be okay with, with just giving them the option, knowing that they're not going to take it. Or if they do take it, God's going to be like, ha, too late, it was just a, a false offer anyways, you're dead, right? But he has this haunting suspicion that they're going to accept it, God's going to be nice to them, and in a sense, I mean, Jonah kind of seals the fate of his own people. This, this is the country that's going to come destroy all of them. And Jonah was involved in letting them keep going, keeping God from destroying them. And if you'll read in chapter 4, this, by the way, has nothing to do with the sermon, but this is just interesting to me. In chapter 4, after all this happens, Jonah tells God, this is what he tells God in chapter 4, you have committed a great evil. Depending on how you look at it, I mean, I think maybe some of our logic would lead us there. If we put this in modern day terms, right? You let an evil person, an evil group of people keep going who will one day commit lots and lots of evil things. He says, you've committed a great evil. And then Jonah says this, and I love it. He says, I knew that you were slow to anger and gracious and mercy and abounding in steadfast love and willing to forgive. 
As if Jonah was like, I knew it all along. You were going to be good to them, and I didn't want you to, and you did it anyways, and this is why I was upset, and this is why I'm going to be upset. And Jonah says, you should just kill me now. I'm just really, really mad at you. He actually quotes from Exodus 34 when he says, For I knew that you are a good God, slow to anger and, and gracious and mercy. And if you go back and read Exodus 34, he leaves off the last half of that quote, which is talking about God's judgment. So in Exodus 34, God reveals his character, and it's a two-part kind of character. The first is gracious and loving and slow to anger and abounding stuff love, willing to forgive. And then he says, but I'll repay the guilty. In fact, to the third or fourth generation, I'll get their children, I'll get their children's children, I'll get their children's children, children. And Jonah, there's a sense that Jonah's going, I knew that you weren't willing to do that second part. I knew it. I knew you were really wanting to have pity on everybody. Perhaps I knew that you really looked like Jesus. You really looked like the one who, who's willing to suffer out of love and have pity on everybody. And God asked Jonah, should I not have pity on them, on your enemies? I mean, I think we, we kind of miss out on that. That would be like going like to Osama, Sudan. I mean, think about the most evil person you can imagine. And then think about God letting them go to the point where you'd say, you've done something evil. Because you wanted to love this person. And God says, should I, do you think I love you more than your enemies? Do you think I have some partiality here? And so Jonah runs the other way. Paul, though, has had that taken out of him. He's again decided, I'm all in. Tell me where to go, what to do. Even if it means I'm dead, I'm going to go there. And he gets in the storm. But unlike Jonah, he's not going to get thrown out. He's not going to get swallowed up, okay? Because Paul is righteous. He's doing the faithful thing. Whereas Jonah was, again, running the other way. So, all hope is lost. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. What I want to ask you this morning is if, if you've ever been in that situation. I know we don't usually confess those type of things, okay, talk about that kind of thing in church. Um, but if you've ever started to follow Christ, have you ever tried to, to, to do the Christian thing, live that kind of life, and find yourself so beaten down, so hurt, so turn, torn up, that you come to kind of the end of your rope. You bottom out. You have lost hope. I think sometimes we give, we give lip service. We verbalize this idea that, yeah, the Christian life's not perfect, right? We're going to face suffering. We're going to face troubles. We give lip service to it. But then when we actually get around to confessing our, our struggles and boasting and our weakness like Paul does, it's like a job interview where they ask you, like, what's your weakness? And you're like, well, I tend to bring in so much money to businesses. They don't know what to do with it. Uh, and so it just takes them some extra time to, to move the, the accounts around and things like that. So, it, I mean, it's really not a weakness, right? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm praying so much. I'm, I don't know. I'm just not being able to focus on the worldly things like I used to. Um, Paul does, is, is very honest in his struggles. Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 1, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 1, he'll say, I, I despaired of life when a certain event happens to him. He felt depression, hopelessness. As one who's experienced depression, right, there's a big difference between depression, like actual depression, and then just like feeling bummed out, right? One is circumstantial, that some events have happened, you'll get over it, you're just a little sad. And one is, again, this feeling of hopelessness. But when you felt, I mean, you realize this is a very specific thing to feel. You feel like all of your plans have been dashed, it's over. You find yourself in the sea. And you might even start to wonder, what, what went wrong here? I was following you. Why, why am I about to die here in the ocean all alone? 
why after all of that, two years in Caesarea, am I going to die and be buried in the sea and not even get to Rome? All hope had been lost. What I want us to do is look at, at kind of what happens here as Paul keeps on going and, and maybe come up with some things that you and I should do as we either prepare for or react uh, to storms, to seas that, that we might face in our lives. Again, I think, I think maybe some of us are in a storm right now or experiencing that, that sense of, of being in a ship that's tossed and torn around, right? I mean, that's a common metaphor for life. That was a shipwreck. I mean, that just, that just blew apart in my face. And if you're not, I, I might suggest you might not be far off from one, right? One might be coming for you. You, you don't get to anticipate these kind of things. And when one comes, you don't want to react in an immature way. You want to be prepared. And so, so let's see what Paul does as he faces this, this storm. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incur this injury and loss. So Paul doesn't pass up the opportunity to say, I told you so. <laughs> I'm kind of a big deal. I'm Paul. You should listen to me. Okay. Told you this would happen if we tried to do this and it's happened. Um, uh, 22. Now, yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. You might underline that, that line here, do not be afraid. Did you know that's actually the most common command in the Bible? If you go look at imperatives in Old and New Testament, that's the most common one, numerically. Don't be afraid when God shows up. Hey, don't, don't be scared. Don't be afraid. When they're in the middle of the storm and, and, and Paul passes on the message, don't be, a pay, uh, don't be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. So you're getting to Rome, okay? This is going to happen the way I told you it's going to happen. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. So Paul says, good news and bad news. Good news first, we're getting out of here alive. Bad news, there's going to be some trouble on the way, okay? We are going to crash, we are going to lose the ship, but we're all going to make it out of here alive. So Paul has this vision, and he passes it on to the people on the ship, and he tells them, hey, things are going to work out. This vision is the turning point for Paul. Okay, this is the turning point kind of in the story. The angel comes and says, this is not where the story ends. This is not going to be a big failure, okay? You're going to get out through the other side. You're going to go into the forces of evil and come out. Much like Jesus being crucified and buried and raised again. Again, I think the shipwreck, this is the, the crucifixion for Paul's story. As he lays up Paul's life against Jesus' life. They're not the exact same, but there's this this literary parallel that, that Luke is accomplishing here for us. Here's the first thing I think you, you have to do if you find yourself in this, this storm. You have to see clearly. And seeing clearly, you have to grasp onto faith. You have to hold on to faith with everything that you've got. Now, the Christian faith is different from this kind of wishy-washy optimism, okay, where you just kind of cover up your eyes and put your hands over your ears and say, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay, everything's going to be okay. Despite the evidence around me, despite the circumstances around me, I'm just going to wish myself out of this situation. Christian faith is different in that Christian faith has a real object at its center, a person, a God. And Christian faith is based on real historical facts. For Paul, this was an angel coming to him. Paul didn't lean back on past experience and, and kind of try to sort out the situation himself. He told them, an angel came and said, this is going to happen. If an angel told me, I think it's going to work out the way the angel told me it will work out. For you and I, 
we have faith. We, we get to see God breaking into history with Jesus, dying and resurrecting, establishing the kingdom of God. When, when you and I have faith that things are going to change, when we have faith that God is working in people's hearts, that he is making all things new, that's not, again, an empty sort of faith that we just hope will work out for us. That's something we've seen happen. That's something we celebrate every Sunday. That's a historical, real happening that we respond to. And we say, I know things will work out. Because this is who my God is. This is what he's done. This is what he's revealed to me, to us. And so then we were able to, to, to hope in a future that perhaps we can't see in the moment. So, so again, they had lost all hope of being saved. In, in verse 20, they hadn't seen the sun. They hadn't seen the stars. So, so I mean, they're as lost to see as you can get. They don't know where they are. They're not able to, to, to see where they are, what they can do. They can't control their ship. And Paul comes and says, I've seen something. Something's been revealed to me. We're going to make it out of here alive. And when, when a Christian finds themselves, herself, himself in that storm, the first thing they do is run to the cross and say, I've seen something. I've seen God at work doing something new, bringing salvation. And then it gets a little bit more interesting. Verse 27. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. So we, archaeologists can actually see this, okay? Um, they can find four anchors in a row uh, on the ground near coast. And, and this is the strategy of ships who thought they were going to crash to try to slow down as best they could and maybe be able to get out of the crash a little bit better. So they'd drop an anchor, and, and they would hold on to that as, as long as they could until they thought it was going to snap the ship, and then let it go. And they'd drop another one, and another one, and another one, trying again just to get as slow as possible so that they can kind of coast onto the beach um, and not just kind of shatter when they, when they hit ground. Um, so actually, I mean, if you research, people have said they found these four anchors right over here. Probably kind of some pseudo-scholarship, um, but, but people kind of look for this every now and then. Uh, so they're praying for day to come so they can see where they are. Um, verse 30, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. I would underline circle box that word saved again. Um, so they are like, hey, we're going to go get some more anchors. And they get in the ship and they're about to take off. Paul sees this happening and goes, hey, we need those guys if we're going to successfully do this crash landing. We need all hands on deck, okay? Um, so, so they need to, to stay here. And so the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So everyone's still stuck on the boat. Verse 33. This is fascinating. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food have taken nothing. Perhaps things were just so crazy on the boat that they weren't able to eat for a couple weeks or eat a lot for a couple weeks. Some have suggested perhaps they're fasting. To try to manipulate some god. They would have probably most of them been polytheists, lots of different gods, gods of the sea that perhaps they were, were trying to get to protect them, not eating. Whatever the case, they they're obviously had not been eating for two weeks. And here's what Paul does, verse 34. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. Underline circle, highlight the word strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Verse 35, listen to this. Tell me if you've heard it before. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Read it again. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. That's Luke's phrase for the Eucharist, for the Lord's Supper, for communion. You see it three times in Luke's Gospel in chapter 9 when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Then in 22, the actual Lord's Supper. And then in 24, when, when Jesus breaks bread with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And people have had a really hard time understanding what's happening here. Did Paul just celebrate communion with a bunch of, of pagans on, on the ship here? In the middle of the sea, in the middle of the storm, with them trying not to die. And only having Paul's vision to go on. Does Paul say, let's all sit down and break bread and give thanks? Perhaps is Paul saying, look, my God's taking care of this. You can break your religious fast, okay? In fact, why don't you come to my table to do it, and we'll give thanks to the one who's, who's going to be able to get us out of this, the one who's died, the one who's risen. He gives thanks. He breaks the bread, and he begins to eat it. Verse 36. Then they were encouraged and ate some food themselves, we were on all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Verse 39. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So after the meal, they're encouraged, and then they get sight. They're able to see the land. They're able to see their way out. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosing the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. Now, verse 42, The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. So they were concerned the prisoners would, would get away from them, and they would be killed for letting the prisoners go. So after all of this, again, it looks like Paul's whole mission is about to be destroyed right in front of him again. They're going to kill him, so they don't have to deal with them at all. Now, the centurion, though, who's kind of become friends with Paul, Wishing to save Paul, underline, circle, highlight, box, save, save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely, underline, box, circle, highlight, safely. And so it was all were brought safely to land. Paul is shipwrecked, and Paul makes it to land. And Paul will carry on the gospel to Rome. Again, I think one of the things Luke is doing here for us is letting us realize Jesus' death, while Paul's life is mimicking Jesus in very real ways, Jesus' death and resurrection are unique events in history. With Jesus, something unique has happened in that, again, the enemy has been defeated. He has saved people. And so when Paul faces the enemy... He doesn't need to defeat it, right? He actually has ultimate victory over it. He'll, he'll just go through it and keep on going on with his mission. The gospel will advance on to Rome. Things aren't the exact same here. Now, we underlined five words, or highlighted, or circled, or boxed, okay? Um, they're all the word for salvation in Greek, okay? Verse 20, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Verse 31, um, the centurion and soldiers are told by Paul, unless he's been staying in the ship, you cannot be saved. Verse 34, therefore I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength. You're like, that's not saved. In the Greek, that's actually the word for salvation, okay? It's translated here, strength. Don't let it throw you off. In verse 43, the centurion wishing to save Paul. Okay, there you have it. And then in verse 44, so it was that all were brought safely to land. Again, safely doesn't sound like saved to us. That's actually the exact same word in verse 43, that our ESV is translated as save. In five, 
places here, five different locations. This is a, a story about salvation. Luke often doesn't give us theory or abstract formulas when he wants to communicate deep ideas to us. And so people have noticed this about his gospel for a long time. He doesn't ever explain Jesus' death. Mark does it a little bit. He gives us this, this saying from Jesus, I've come to give my life as a ransom for you, to free you. Matthew will, will be a little bit more explicit again and explain Jesus' death. John is all about that. John does it very clearly. Luke just tells the story. And people have often wondered, does Luke even believe in the atonement? I mean, does Luke, does Luke think something happened here? And, and, and the problem is, you're not realizing Luke's telling you what he thinks with his story. The forces of evil gather in and pour down on Jesus himself in Jerusalem, and he rises again in victory. Paul, confronted with evil, wrecks and gets on land safely. Jesus, when he wants to tell us how atonement works, doesn't give us a theory. He gives us food and drink. Now, we, we argue over how it works, right? We try to come up with theories, and when we can't do it, we get really frustrated and, and yell at each other and debate and bicker. When Jesus is like, well, that's kind of what I was trying to avoid in the first place. When Jesus wants to explain his death, he says, eat the bread and drink the wine. That's my death for you. And when Paul, again, is about to encounter his version of the crucifixion, the shipwreck, just like Jesus before the crucifixion, he, he participates in the Eucharist and communion. And, and we might say, well, with people who aren't Christians? And then we might remember, well, it is Paul who's kind of broken down all those barriers, and people get mad at him constantly for doing it. I mean, this is open communion, <laughs> okay? This is, this is as open as you can get here. He participates and he, he remembers. Jesus' death is for us. Again, we, we argue over transubstantiation, consubstantiation. What exactly is happening? Is it just symbolic when we, when we take the bread and, and eat of the wine? And we forget that, that we're just supposed to do it. That's just how Jesus has told us we're to participate in his death. And we're to remember it. We're to somehow have a role in it. We eat and we drink. I, I've been reminded that when Jesus says that we eat and we drink, he, he's not saying that as if there are lots of other ways that we can accomplish remembering him and understanding his death. And that's one out of the many options. So you might like to do it once a quarter, twice a year, once every year, right? But you could just as easily remember his death by telling the story or singing a song or this or that or this or that. That's not how the church has, has done it for thousands of years. So that's not how Jesus himself imagines doing it. He says, when you get together, eat and drink. There's something about that physical act. Is it this impressive philosophical theory? No, but it's something I can do. I can participate. I can, I can realize my taste buds can tell me I have a part in what happened to him. That was for me, meeting it, drinking it. I think one of the things that, that we've got to do if we find ourselves in the storm is we've got to, to break the bread and drink the wine. We have to, in, in one sense, continue to worship, continue to celebrate, continue to meet with the family of God's people. As Hebrews would say, don't stop meeting together. This is the practice of some. But every day, encourage each other. Keep coming together. Christians for, for centuries have talked about the Eucharist communion in the sense of it gives you strength. In some sense, again, no matter how you define it, there's something about that act of coming to the table that builds you up, prepares you. 
ensures that you will again find that salvation that's waiting after the shipwreck. The storm, I think, is coming if we're not already in the storm. But the storm for a Christian is a much different thing to experience. It's something that's expected. It's something that doesn't cause hope to be permanently lost. It's something where you you experience it and then you grasp onto faith. You continue to break the bread. You look forward to the salvation that's coming. Now in just a minute we'll we'll participate in communion. We we do this every week uh, at First Colony. It's something that um, I think once you participate in every week, it's very hard, from what I've been told, to go back to not doing every week. Um, I mean, knowing, being very good friends with other church leaders, I know the only reason they don't do it every week is because, logically, it's not possible for them, just feasibly. So many people, things like that. They said, we would love to do it every week. It's just too, too much. We can't do it every week. We would devise these other ways to do it. There's something special about, about doing this. Something special about being in the storm. I mean, only a Christian it would be in this storm in this sea that's being tossing around this little boat. Everyone thinks they're about to die. Who sits down and says, let's remember his death and resurrection. Let's eat and let's drink. There's something special and remarkable and beautiful about that. And Christians who find themselves in the storm, I think, should follow. Should follow in practice. What a, what a better thing to do, I think, to prepare for a storm or to endure one than to eat and to drink and to celebrate and to participate. So in just a minute, we'll, we'll do that. We'll pray together. Now, we are um, opening up some things for worship. Um, so what we'll be doing uh, a little bit this year is uh, during communion, after maybe you participate, or during the first worship song afterwards, we'll have an elder who you can pray with, okay? Maybe you're in the storm this morning and, and you just want some prayer. Maybe something's happening. You want to talk. You want to pray. Jake is our elder this morning, okay? He'll be just right outside these doors, and he'll be able to take you to a private place, okay? And y'all can pray. Y'all can talk. So again, after we, we invite you up to take communion, um, feel free to come on up. And then if you'd like, uh, go find Jake in the hallway. He'd love to pray with you, okay? Um, but I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll be invited.